If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to take a little break from Psalm 119 this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. That's the word of the Lord to us this morning. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found... Who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Father, I pray that the truth of your word would be made evident this morning, that your call on the Christian life is not one of ease and comfort, Lord, but a call to fight, a call to live for you. Just pray that we would see that this morning and that we would be encouraged and convicted. Lord, I pray your spirit would rest upon me and give me clarity and wisdom as I bring your word. Or that your words would be true to our lives, not just something we hear and walk away from. But Lord, that we would apply your word as we've been reading in Psalm 119 to our lives, that we would seek earnestly to know you and to live for you. Prepare our hearts to hear your word, we pray. Anoint us with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. This is a really popular text. I'm sure if you tuned into most uh, sermons This week, this would be the top of the list. (laughs) Actually, probably not. This is not the message that most people hear when the gospel is first shared with them, because it's not a, a full gospel that is being preached. Oftentimes, the temptation for us as believers is to share a gospel that is easy and will just fix your life. It's like a Cinderella story from Disney, right? I mean, how many Disney princesses do you have to have before you begin to believe that everything after you find that man is going to make your life great? Well, we we almost treat Christ like a princess, a prince, right? Not that he's not, but he life with Christ is not happily ever after in the sense that the world looks at it. It is peace and joy and hope, but it's not happily ever after. It's not everything will be easy now. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 10. He is preparing, he's just called his disciples, and he's preparing them to go out. And he says in verse verse 16 of chapter 10, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I mean, that's a great calling, right? <laughs> okay, sheep, come here. You see those wolves, that pack of wolves over there? I want you to go in and witness to them. You imagine the mind of the sheep. Those wolves look at me and they see lamb chops and, you know, they see a nice grilled lamb, leg of lamb. You know, they, they don't see me as as some thing to listen to. I'm just a a lamb. But Jesus is saying, I'm sending you like sheep into the midst of wolves. So he warns him him at the second half of verse 16, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. You need to be careful about how you go about being in the midst of wolves, but you also need to be 
pure in heart. And then Jesus says in verse 17, he says, But beware of men that they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, if you had just picked 12 disciples, would this be the message you would give them? Hey, come on, guys. You're going to go like sheeps into the midst of wolves, and um, you're going to be taken to jail, and you're going to be beaten at the synagogue. Um, You're going to go before kings and governors. I guarantee you, if you put that job description up on any job search site, um, I don't think you would get very many applicants, if any. Because no one wants to be sent out to die. But that's what God is calling through Jesus, His disciples, to do. But Jesus does give them hope in verse 19. He says, But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you shall say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So that could give you hope, but still it's like, why would I join this party or this group of people? Could you imagine a political leader starting out their political career with this invitation? Hey, we're going to go out like sheep in the midst of wolves to try and change our nation. That's why Jesus was not a political figure. Nobody wanted to follow him. And the ones who did saw who he really was. They saw that he was the son of God because, remember, Jesus started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And all the people were like, Jesus, you're strange. That's just so weird. And they just left. And Jesus asked his disciples, are you going to go too? Are you going to leave with them? They said, no, you have the words of life. They saw the value of God's word in Christ. So Jesus is not making disciples and just saying, oh, by the way, when you go out, you're going to be like wolves in the midst of sheep. You're just going to be able to get everything you need. Everything's going to be great for you. You just say that and guess what? Tomorrow you're going to have a Porsche in your driveway. And the next day you're going to have a mansion um, in Beverly Hills. I don't know if that's a nice place to live anymore, but um, at some point it was. You're going to have a mansion, you know, wherever everybody wants to live. Or you could say a mansion in San Francisco because that's... That's an expensive place to live. (laughs) But not that you would want to live there anyways. um, But maybe if you want to be a witness, that would be a good place to be a witness. Plenty of people that need to hear the gospel, just like where we live. But that being said, Jesus is not calling them to a life of comfort and ease and everything comes easy. He's calling them to lay down their lives. And in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 10, he kind of gives us a precursor of what we've just read this morning in verse 34 and following. He says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children rise up against parents and cause him to be put to death. That is a very grim picture. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. This is not the gospel message that you hear oftentimes from the televangelists. I don't know of any, actually, that would start off this way. So 
Then he's, he, can, he continues in verse 23, but who, whenever they persecute you in one city, run away, just get away from everyone. No, flee to the next city. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Jesus isn't telling them, if you suffer persecution, stop witnessing. He says, just go to the next city. This is like a blueprint for what Paul did. Right? The Apostle Paul would get stoned, and they thought he was dead. Then he would go to the next city. Or they would try to trap him, and somebody would let him know, and he'd get out of the city, out of the basket. Can you imagine? You're a Christian... If you had been told as a Christian, oh, it's going to be all easy, and then you're like the Apostle Paul and you're getting stoned, you're getting whipped, you're getting lashed, you're getting all kinds of evil things done to you because you're a Christian, you wouldn't stick with it. But Jesus doesn't leave the difficult things for the last. He begins His call for His disciples with the hard news. Verse 24, he's, he gives us a reason. Like, why is it that we're going to be persecuted? He says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough, not enough, sorry, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, which is what they call Jesus, how much more will they malign or mistreat the members of his household. And later on in verse 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him. Who's him? Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is preaching the whole gospel to his disciples as he's getting ready to send them out. What is he sending them out to do? To cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to preach the good news. So when we finally get to verse 34, we see this whole context. Jesus is preparing his disciples to go out, to be His witnesses. And I believe that this passage especially applies to us today because in our world, people are canceling everyone. We talked about this some last week. Everywhere you turn, people are getting excommunicated from Twitter, from Facebook, but not the church, interestingly. I remember there were times when people would say, well, I can't believe you would excommunicate somebody for gross sin. And it's like, <laughs> you're excommunicating people from your life because they said one thing 20 years ago. Right? Yet, here, Christ is saying, look, people are going to hate you. Not because of who you are, necessarily, but because of the message that you're preaching. You want to live by God's Word as we've been talking about in Psalm 119. If you, you desire to know the Lord, to truly have a relationship with Him, you will suffer persecution. And so when he gets to verse 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Oh, that's all people think about Jesus, right? Christmas time comes around, that's all they're singing. There's nothing about... The cost of discipleship. There's nothing about the price that has to be paid. Because we don't want difficulty. And we don't, we're afraid that if we tell people the truth up front as Christians, they'll walk away from God. He says, I didn't come to bring peace, I didn't, but I soared. 
A sword? Really? Jesus came, so he came to do war against people? Is that what he's... Is he, he, has he come to declare war on the world? The Jews thought that the Messiah would come and destroy all their enemies with a sword. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's interesting, this, this word sword, it, there's two words in, in the Greek, but this one is the word that they would use to describe a dagger. Which is interesting. Do you typically attack someone in battle with a dagger? No. You attack someone in the back with a dagger. It's a small sword. It's hidden so that you can stab somebody in the back. I don't think it's an accident that this passage uses that word. Because when you get to the next two verses, 35 and 37... Or 30, 35 through 37, we see what happens, what he means. Because he says, I did not come to bring a peace, but a sword. And then verse 35 starts with the word for. And what have I told you when you think of, when you see the word for, Paul or any writer in the New Testament especially, for is used in Greek. This word that's translated for is used to describe what he means. It's grounding everything he said. So if you see for, then think, okay, he's about to tell me what he means by sword. So he says, for I came to set a man against his father. What? You mean that you came so that you could make a man and his father be against one another? Makes sense. And a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household? That doesn't sound very um, good. I mean, who wants to follow that if God is just going to, Jesus came to, to cause division? It's interesting this word set is the word for cut asunder. I don't think it's an accident. Again, Jesus has used a word that describes a sword, and especially a short sword. And then he uses a word that is used to describe cutting. So cutting asunder and and causing them to be against each other. So those natural natural family bonds, which especially in a, in a Jewish culture, would have been everything. Your family is your lifeblood. It's much very similar in Latino culture. Re- really, if you go outside of the West, Western culture, this is very true. Not that it's not so in our culture, but it's, we're so independent, especially in American culture, that we act like we don't need our family. But outside of that idea of no need for family, in Latino culture, in, the, in Africa, in the Middle East, family is everything. If you get cut off from your family, if you're in opposition to your parents and your siblings, then you're a pariah. You're nothing. You have nothing. When a Christian in the time of Christ... When somebody, a Jew, came to Christ in the time of the apostles, they were put out of the synagogue, which meant that they had, the synagogue was the place of all social interaction. It's just like being, I know this is terrible, it's like getting canceled off of Twitter and Facebook for some people. It shouldn't be for us as Christians. We should actually have real, live relationships. But for many people... They treat Twitter and, and, and Facebook like family. And they can't imagine being shut down and not able to get on those. But for them, the synagogue was where everything happened. That's how you knew what was going on. That's how you got provision. But if you were became a Christian, you suddenly had your mother and your father and your siblings 
and even your grandparents turning against you. You could not follow Christ and remain a Jew who was a part of your family. It's much like the Saudi Arabian students that I met when I was at U of L. I would share the gospel with them, and they said, "You don't know that you don't realize the price. If I become a Christian, my family will kill me, literally. If I go back and I told them that I became a Christian, I would die. And this is not uncommon. There are Christians." Saudi Christians in Saudi Arabia, but most of them keep quiet because they're afraid that they'll be killed. Because their law allows, if you convert to to Christianity from Islam, their law requires that you kill. If you don't, then the military, the religious police of Saudi Arabia will kill you in their place. This is this is today. This isn't. In the time of Christ, but that's how it was in the time of Christ. Becoming a Christian was not popular. We in our culture have experienced relative ease to be or not to be a Christian. You can come and go as you please. There's no price to pay. But that's changing. It's changing today. So what would be in our day, we're looking at this passage, they're, they're talking about actually being cut off from their family. And that their family would be angry at them. Because can you imagine if you're all about family, if your culture is about your family providing for one another, and one person in your family suddenly decides, well, I'm going to be a Christian. Do you think that that looks good on the parents and the siblings of this individual? In the community, do you no, they're they're gonna be ostracized. I can't believe you'd raise a child to be a Christian. I can't believe that your sister or your brother is a Christian. Or your grandchild is a Christian. Y'all did a terrible job, and now you're not gonna have anybody to provide for you. I can't believe you you didn't raise them better than that. But what would this look like today? Because we're, we live in a very different culture, right? Unfortunately, family is not as important to most people. But even so, let's say it is. Maybe we have a good relationship. But what if being a Christian requires you to take a stance that would cause you to be ostracized by family, even family who considers themselves Christians? It happens, and it's going to become more clear. And I'm going to bring a topic in that may... It's controversial outside of this church. I don't know how controversial it would be in this church. I don't think it would be, but I could be wrong. And it's vaccines. The vac- just, We're just going to talk just about the vaccine for COVID-19. So, if I from the pulpit, say, I don't believe we should be getting vaccines, how many people would be upset? I don't know. But if you ask me why, I have an ethical reason. I think as Christians, we cannot ethically do that and be in line with God's Word. And I'll tell you why. Because I was reading this. This is, this is known fact. You can look it up. This isn't just one um, angry blogger on internet but vaccines the vaccines for COVID-19 require live tissue to test where do you think they get these tissues an abortion two, the two main um, cell tissues that they test off of are taken from a, an aborted baby that's all that's um, offered. There's no other vaccine that does, hasn't been hasn't used fetal tissue to um, to test and to produce these vaccines. 
not one, in COVID-19. Because with a virus, it's not like a bacteria. Bacteria will grow without cell, live cells. But a virus requires live cells. The more heartbreaking thing, which I did not know until I was reading this article last night, is that these babies were alive when they took the kidneys from this one, this baby in Finland. I mean, talk about demonic. This is like Hitler-level demonic activity. And this is not uncommon. Like, this is in a scientific research article. I'm talking about a secular article. The, 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 the person who wrote this article is actually Catholic, pro-life Catholic. But the, the quotes that she's providing are from secular papers in, that are common, can be found any, by anyone. They're not like, she's not digging into some person who has no, like this is information coming from the people who created vaccines for polio. This is very, and it's sickening to, dis, to, 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 to hear, I didn't know this, but the thing is you cannot have a live tissue, a live cell, unless the baby is still alive or the person. So let, let's say that you want to say, well, that's not, that was a long time ago. So this was in the, the 30s. Crazy to believe this was going on in the 30s. And we denounce Hitler for the stuff he did on the mentally retarded and um, people with disabilities. But the, we were doing the exact same thing undercover in the U.S. at the time. It, it's sickening because they were taking women who had mental issues and they were making it where she couldn't have a child but also aborting her child and taking her child and dissecting the child alive and saving those parts to create to do medical research and this does not just apply to vaccines there's all kinds of medical uses that they have done and there's a reason why the abortion clinics are pushing because they want this I mean, what was it, three years ago, the lady was doing undercover, and they found out they were selling fetal tissue from aborted fetuses? It, not fetuses, from human beings. But anyways, so if I take a stance on that issue, just think about it right now with the way that our world is turning. I know this is not a exciting message at this point, but we need to think, as Christians, we have to think about what are the implications of how I live? Because we can say, I can preach all I want about Psalm 119 and how good the Word of God is, but if I don't look at the implications of living by God's Word, I believe life begins at conception, so whether they truly did take this kidney from the child when it was still alive, this heart was still beating, doesn't matter. Because that was a child. And you're using a, a, a wicked means of doing something good. So we're, we're justifying the, the means. We're saying, well, that's the end justifies the means. As long as we get a good result from it, you know, it's okay. And I as a Christian, I can't look at that and just say, you know what, that's no big deal. No, because I can't imagine somebody doing that to one of my children alive. Could you imagine somebody dissecting a person, a human being? Let's say that they decided that, well, I mean, life is only good if it's viable. So they decided to start taking kidneys and hearts and stuff from people who are alive but may have a mental issue. Well, who decides when that's a mental issue? It may be Christians. 
But that being said, could you imagine that being okay? If somebody found out that um, medical technology was taking hearts out of living people to do medical research, would that be okay in our culture? At this moment, no. But that's essentially what we're doing because there's no bioethics. There's no ethics behind this kind of research. But as Christians... Just think about how our government right now is looking at people who refuse to get the vaccine. Some of people are just refusing because there's no actual ethical reason for it other than I'm just not going to do what the government says. So I'm not lumping everyone in a a category. But what if people have a legitimate ethical reason as Christians But the government is saying, well, they're the problem. They're creating this issue where you're the issue because you won't do this. What if our world... So this is where it gets real. What if they actually created a vaccine card you had to have to buy goods and services? Guess what? New York City is doing it right now. You can't go to a restaurant. I don't know about, about um, grocery stores, but you can't go into a restaurant in, in New York City without a vaccine card. In the United States of America. So, as a Christian, are you going to stand for what this, the implications of this? Are you willing to die on the hill of Christian ethics, or are you going to capitulate and say, well, I would rather eat. I I think it extends beyond restaurants. I I haven't looked at all the... I think it's a whole... If you go into a building that's not your home, then you have to have a vaccine card, which is insane, to be honest. And so this is happening right now. It's not 10 years in the future. Yeah, it's not happening in Kentucky yet. But if we think that it's going to stay in New York City, we're crazy. Because this idea is being driven by fear, and the devil is using it because he wants Christians to back off. Don't believe what the Bible says. Don't live by God's Word. And this is why this message, I think, God has put it on my heart. Because I'm seeing so many people... And Christians, even on social media, because they don't even, they don't know how vaccines are created. They don't know, they don't check into those things. As Christians, we have to do research as Christians to find out, is this actually an ethical way of doing? Instead, people will believe what the doctor says. Whether the doctor is being Purposely deceitful, because not all doctors are trying to... They don't even realize the full implications, and they, most doctors don't think about the ethics of a vaccine. They're just like, well, this is the best way to deal with this issue. I'm not trying to pick a pet issue, but it's, it's one that's realistic today. But what if it became an issue of that, and would some of your family begin to disown you if you, they found out you didn't have a vaccine. It's possible. If the government said, we want you to turn in people, if we find out that you know people who are unvaccinated and you knew it, we're going to throw you into jail with them. Would your, those people closest to you turn against you? Again, this is hypothetical in a sense unless you live in New York City right now. But there is a time when Christians will be persecuted for real in the United States. It's happening all over the world. If we think we're immune to persecution, there's going to be come a day. It may not be vaccines, but there will be something that the devil will require that will that the world will require that the devil has planned 
to shut the church down. And we all have to decide, are we going to follow God? Like Jesus is, this is what he's talking about. He's saying, are you going to choose me or your family? If your family decides you have to get this or do this, will you do that over? Are you more concerned about the relationships of the people close to you than you are about your relationship with God? It's interesting, Christ, Jesus, when he is, he's actually quoting Micah 7. So turn there with me. Well, I'm having an issue finding it. There we go. Micah chapter 7. I want to start in verse 1, but the passage that he quotes is in verse 6. In verse 1, Micah 7, it says, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. So there's a famine. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bride. And a great man speaks the desires of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. So the best man that is living in this time is like a briar. The most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come, then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously, and daughter rises up against mother-in-law. Daughter-in-law or against her mother, sorry, and then daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. I read this prophecy and it very striking to our day and age. We're seeing righteous men unwilling to stand up against the wicked. And capitulate, just backing off. And that's the encouragement from even friends. Can't you just tone it down? Don't, don't say those things. I think the most telling thing here is in verse 5. From her who lies in your bosom. Who's he talking about? Your wife, your husband. You can't trust anyone because all are wicked. All are choosing sin. And I hate to talk about family members that way, but that's essentially what Jesus is dealing with. Your enemies will be the people in your own home. Could be. People you grew up with. People you had close relationships. Could be even people that we knew growing up here in this church. Wouldn't surprise me because... I know where some of them stand now. All i got to do is go on their Facebook page, and I don't doubt that they would turn me in. But the question is, Christians, are we going to live by God's Word, or are we going to live according to the ways of this world? Are we willing to pay the price? Because if He is God, then we should do that, right? If Just read with me in verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. How often have we seen a, a parent or a, 
a family walk away from Christ because the child began to walk away. And they followed him out the door. I can count on many, I know so many situations like that. Where the kids began to walk away and the parents didn't stay. But I've also seen the opposite where the parents stayed and they stood fast to their conviction that God is God. And I will follow Him no matter what. It's interesting, this quote from, or this verse in 37 is very similar to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Turn there with me. So Moses in verse chapter 33 is blessing the people of Israel. And he says this of Levi. In verse 8, he says, Let your Thummim and your Urim belong to your godly men, whom you proved at Massa, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I do not consider, uh, sorry, consider them, And he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons. For they, who are they? The the chosen ones, the godly men of Levi. For they observed your word and kept your covenant. These priests of God refused to let their children and their parents and their their siblings keep them from doing right. This is a, a very different contrast to Eli. Remember Eli, the book of Samuel? His sons were sleeping with women outside the temple, and they were performing the duty of priests. And Levi just, or Eli just kind of gave him a slap on the wrist. I can't believe you do that. Oh, kids, come on. And what did God do? God brought judgment. He killed both Phineas and Hophni in the same day. And it was actually the same day that Eli died when he heard the news. And then Phineas' wife died, and they were left with a son named Ichabod, which you've probably heard that story. But this was the result of sin that was not dealt with. Eli regarded his children more than the truth of God's Word. That's why God anointed Samuel to take his place, because God said, I will not allow Eli to, and his family to lead my people anymore. Because he has considered his father, his mother, his sons more than me. So a godly man here are those who will not allow family or friends to overrule their relationship with the Lord, convictionally. I'm going to stand for truth, is what they're saying, no matter what. Is that, a, is that something we're willing to do? Because it's not popular in our culture to stand for truth anymore, because there's no absolute truth anymore. Well, that's what they tell you because they don't have a God. It's hard to have absolute truth when you ignore God. Verse 38. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. This word take is more take up, to carry his cross. Does this mean we all need to be walking around with a wood cross over our shoulders? No. But it also doesn't mean that any difficulty we encounter in our life is our cross to carry. Have you heard that expression? Oh, I'm suffering this way. That is not persecution, it's like physical ailment. Oh, I'm, I'm suffering because this happened in my life. That's my cross to carry. That's not what Jesus is talking about. 
When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's talking about going to die. You are carrying the instrument of your death. And what is our instrument of death? The Word of God in Christ alone. That's what we're carrying. You make a decision to live according to God's Word and to share God's Word with those you love, with the people you encounter every day, one day it will be illegal to share the Gospel in this country like it is in many countries. And you will have to make a decision. Will I stop sharing the Gospel or will I be faithful to carry the cross that God has given? Jesus was obedient to death. He took and obeyed everything that God gave him from his birth to his death. Why? Because he loved us. Because he cared for us. Because he knew that without his sacrifice, there was no way of reconciliation with God. Despite what BLM is saying... The only way to reconcile with God is not by destroying another group of people. It is in the blood of Jesus Christ that we have reconciliation with God and with one another. That's the gospel. It's not any other way. But if you go out in the middle of some of those crowds and you begin to preach that message, that might be the cross that you carry. It may be the instrument of your death. But we don't have a right to stop sharing the gospel because we're all commissioned to make disciples. There's no disciple maker category in Christianity. There's no disciple-maker title. Some people may be better at it. They've striven after seeking and making disciples, but we're all called to make disciples. It may be at your work. It may be at your school. It may be at the subway that you get lunch at. I was reading a book on evangelism this week, and one of the pastors, he didn't like subway, but he knew that Subway was a good place to witness to the people that worked there. So he would go to Subway every day. Now, it would take a lot for God to... Okay, I need better be calmed down. But I like good food, so that really... Like, oh man, I don't know if I could go to Subway every day just to witness. And God said, <clears throat> Really? But he gave up the opportunity. He's a pastor in D.C. There's lots of good restaurants in D.C., just so you know. And he gave up the opportunity to go eat at a better place because he knew that he would have a better opportunity to share the gospel at Subway. And I know this story because his friend went, went to eat with him, and he goes, yeah, we're going to go to Subway over here. And he's like, Subway? Why are we going to Subway? Isn't there a better restaurant? He's like, yeah, but I get opportunity to share the gospel here. He goes, oh. And then he got convicted. So maybe we should all start going to Subway. Will it increase their income uh, greatly, I'm sure? <laughs> no. But anyways, to think in our life, how are we carrying the cross that Christ has given us to bear? Are we... If we're not willing to share the gospel now, if fear is keeping us from sharing the gospel now, is, is it going to be any better when there's a chance of death for sharing it? I don't know that it changes. I know that's not necessarily what Jesus is talking about here, but He's talking about following Jesus. Whatever God commands, there, there is... So much that the Bible teaches us to do that will not be popular in our culture anymore. It's been easy to live a Christian life in our culture because our culture has been shaped, though is not, 
by Christianity. Because the laws of our land are based upon Scripture, not all of them, i.e. abortion, but a large portion of our way of thinking is understood through Christians, a Christian worldview. But the more and more that is rejected, the more and more difficult it will be to be a Christian. It'll be like the early church, where the Christian view of the world will be so backwards. They're going to look at us like we're a country bumpkin, as some people like to say, or a hillbilly. I can't believe you believe those things. You're so ignorant and uneducated. I can't believe you could believe those things. But it's, it's coming. And the question is, are we going to be living in fear? Man, I better give up these thoughts so that I can fit in. Or are we going to stand fast and hold firm the Word of God and say, God has said this. I believe it and I will die for this. Are you willing to die for your convictions? Because if you're not... We need to check our heart and ask the Lord, Lord, why am I not willing? Do I think you're worthy? Because if Christ is worth our death, then He's worth it all, not just a portion. And we're not going to find ourselves without Christ. You know how I know that? You can go searching the whole world around to find yourself and you're not going to find hope and peace and victory because this is what the Bible says in verse 39. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. It's interesting, this word life is the word psyche. which can mean self or soul. Not as much soul, but self. Have all these people trying to find themselves. What's Jesus saying? You're not going to find yourself unless you're willing to lay down your life for me. That's the only way you're going to find life and peace and hope is in Christ. And this is the thing. If we think that we can just throw the cross off and be like, you know what? I'm going to walk however feels good. I'm going to try to fit in, which unfortunately many Christians and those who call themselves Christians are doing. If I just blend in and keep my thoughts to myself, then people won't excommunicate me from their lives. But what are you doing? You're not... Sharing the greatest news in the whole world. I know it's easy to read a passage like this and be kind of discouraged. Oh, the Christian life is so hard. Why, why would I want to live this way? Well, there is hope. So turn with me to John chapter 16. Jesus is praying for his disciples in this section. And in verse 33, he says, These things have I spoken to you. I'm telling you about this prayer that I've prayed to God for you, that you would have peace and hope and would be able to overcome the enemy. He says, I've spoken these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Not in name the issue, vaccines or masks or whatever, presidential, party, political results, governor, mayor, whomever it may be. It's not in that. 
You're not going to have peace in those people, whether they're good good or bad, depending on which side you come from. But Jesus said, I've spoken these things to you so that you may have peace in me, in me myself, not in this world. Nothing in this world will give you peace. Jesus hasn't come to the world to bring world peace as people are trying to attain to. You know why? Because sin rules the world. The prince of the power of the air is ruling this world. The children of disobedience who are children of the devil are ruling this world. There are times when God raises up men who are generally good. I'm not saying totally good. But there's been times in history when God raised up men to cause the spread of the gospel. It's interesting, though, the gospel seems to spread better in persecution than it does in prosperity. Just look at China. A church that has grown by millions, all in the midst of persecution. So I've spoken these things that you in me, you may have peace. And then he says this. In the world you have tribulation. Amen. Everybody's up in so happy about this verse, right? That's where it stops. Oh, in this world you're gonna have tribulation. Feel like I'm over at Karis's talking to one of the old farmers, right? It's all it's all bad news. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He actually commands them to take courage. He says, "But take courage. Yes, you're going to encounter trouble and tribulation, persecution. But take courage." Don't let that overrule your heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. You know what this word overcome is? It's a compound word from which we get the word, well, from which the company Nike gets their name. So if you remember how this word became famous in English culture, there was a battle and a man ran a marathon. The first marathon runner. Except he didn't have anybody running against him. He just wanted to get to the city where he came from and tell them, Nikeo, we won. We have the victory. We conquered them. And then he died. Nike forgets to tell you that. <laughs> so the verse... The first marathon runner died after he ran a marathon. <laughs> Which, by the way, his name came from that town, anyways. Or the name Marathon came from that. For all that uh, history knowledge that you need. <laughs> so, when Jesus says, I have overcome the world, he says, I have conquered the world. The world has no claim over me. I have conquered sin and death. There's nothing now that the world can take from me because I am victorious. I have the victory. I have destroyed the works of darkness. So when we become Christians, yes, it's going to be hard. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be tribulation. But our God has overcome the world and given us victory so that we know in the end, He will reign. You know how I know that? Not just because of this, but because of what Revelation chapter 4 and 5 say. So turn there and we'll close. I'm going to read a large section of this just because I think it's such a beautiful picture of what heaven's going to be like. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and, a first, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come, 
up here. And I will show you what you must take what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a th- throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Like a flag or I don't think so. I don't think it was a flag. Like an emerald in appearance, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. In the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And the day and night they did not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of you, your will, they existed and were created. But that's not the end. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome Same word, victorious, has conquered so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, which was each one holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. This is our God. This is who Jesus is. He was slain so that he could purchase for God that we would think of what you've done for us each and every day, each and every moment, that when this temptation to live for self, the temptation to let the old man back in, the temptation to walk away from Christ, that we would remember your worth and what you paid, the price you paid for us, that you ransomed us through your blood, that you delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. You gave us your life because we were wretched sinners. You made a way 
to be reconciled with God. Or let us not forget that. Let us not run away. Let us run after you, we pray, and let us be strong in your word. Committed to truth. Committed to live as lights in a dark and dying world. I pray that in these next few weeks while we're gone that you would bless each of us with a greater love for our neighbors. Because we love you more. Because we are valuing you above all things. I pray that your worth would be our delight that you would be our delight, that we would call one another to go deeper with you, to value you more than ever, or help us as Christians to count the cost. To take your word and apply it each and every day, not just when it's convenient, Lord, but when It is necessary. Let your word be our light and our guide. Draw us to you that we would long for your presence each day. Long to know you more. Or if we don't long and don't desire you like we should, I pray, Lord, that you would quicken our hearts You would encourage us, give us discipline to draw near to You, I pray. Give us hearts to cry out for Your love and Your mercy and Your grace to be made real to us. Give us courage to stand upon Your Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.